0: Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome,
0: welcome, 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 welcome welcome, welcome to the the Vanderbilt Internal
1: Medicine
0: Podcast. This podcast is made by and for our internal medicine residents to enhance our educational experience. The content, while edited by residents, is not verified by hosts or speakers, and we are not content experts on these topics. The content provided by the podcast is not intended and should not construe as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. We attempt to avoid use of opinion, but all opinions represented are our own and are not representative of employer. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy our podcast welcome Welcome back back to the vanderbilt Vanderbilt internal Internal medicine podcast today we are here with christine lopez she is currently one of our chiefs and is planning to go into gi next year she's staying with us at vanderbilt so we're very excited to talk through a gi case with her today christine do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself interest in gi fun fact whatever you want before you get into the case.
1: Hi, Tara. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. This is my first time podcasting. It's going to be great. Here we go. (laughs) Uh, Some fun facts about me. So I love GI specifically, the livers most of all. Hepatology is my dream. The more jaundice, the better. I really enjoy transplant and taking care of patients with liver disease both inside and outside the hospital. Seeing people after they get a transplant is just so satisfying. So I love that. Fun fact about me – I have a dog and a cat. My dog's name's Lola, and she's a little cattle dog. She's really, really good at fetch and frisbee and loves hiking. So we usually take her on, like, two or three good hikes a year. She's done um, Virgin Falls, hoping to take her to Fiery Gizzard this year. So you'll catch us on the trails. (laughs) Everyone loves the Fiery Gizzard. Do you take the cat on the trails as well? The cat has a leash. She doesn't like the leash. Uh, She pretty much just freezes if we take her outside. So the cat will not be joining us. (laughs) So should we get into our case
0: that you brought for us today? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So to kind of frame this case, I just came off Morgan. And it was kind of a Morgan Onc type service, um, where we had a lot of patients with new cancer diagnosis who, you know, weren't taken over to the oncology team since at Vanderbilt, they usually have to have kind of an underlying diagnosis of a certain type of malignancy and being treated by an oncologist here. So we had a lot of brand new cancer diagnoses that we were kind of working up for the first time and figuring out what was going on and what the next steps would be. So this case is kind of an adaptation of one of those. I was going to do an outpatient case since I am an outpatient chief, but I feel like this could be easily adapted to the outpatient setting as well. But So our case is a 55-year-old woman from Columbia. We'll call her Miss S, who presents with worsening epigastric pain She says it's been getting worse and worse, kind of burning, sharp, right in the middle of her epigastric region for the past year. That has gotten progressively worse over the last two months, prompting her to present to the emergency department. She's also had some dark, tarry stools and just kind of general fatigue and feeling unwell. She's not using any alcohol or NSAIDs, she's not using any drugs really no other big red flag symptoms her vitals were normal she was afebrile hemodynamically stable not tachycardic her initial exam was totally benign as well just a mild tenderness to palpation over her epigastrium but other than that couldn't palpate her liver or spleen no abnormal nodes no edema she was otherwise a pretty healthy lady and really hadn't interacted with the healthcare system much um, mostly cuz she doesn't have insurance So, of course, because she presented to the ED, um, they gave her some fluids. They checked some labs, which were notable for a white count of 6.5, a hemoglobin of 8.6, MCV of 66, platelets 227, T-SAT of 6%. So, looks like iron deficiency anemia. Everything else was pretty unremarkable because, again, she's in the ED. She got a pretty quick CT scan of her chest and abdomen. Her CT scan of her belly showed marked irregularity and thickening of the distal gastric body and antrum, with resulting narrowing of the gastric lumen with multiple surrounding enlarged lymph nodes. There were also multiple pulmonary nodules that were seen in the lung basis bilaterally and some Hyler adenopathy that was kind of of unclear significance, whether that was old disease, metastatic disease, what that was. So that was how this person presented to us and then we're admitted for potentially some kind of underlying gi malignancy and for next steps so our team and i had to kind of take the ball and run with it from here and decide what the next steps to do in this this person's care were so we
0: have this woman who has limited touches with the medical system just because of her insurance status who comes in with what looks like iron deficiency anemia and a new mass, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you and your team, have been admitted to this patient, which basically basically an undifferentiated abdominal mass.
1: Yeah, exactly. For something in the the stomach that is likely a mass. And then these pulmonary nodules of unclear significance. So I feel like we kind of took a a moment at this point to stop and just talk about um, what we do with a GI malignancy where we don't know the primary. This we're kind of thinking that maybe this could be something in the stomach itself. But a lot of times we'll see either something in the liver, multiple, you know, masses or Nodules or things, and we have to decide what the next best step is. So, particularly if we find two different masses or lesions, we need to figure out which one we think is the primary and how we're going to stage this to kind of think about the next step so our oncology colleagues can pick up the baton and run with it after this. So if we knew really nothing about this person other than they had a CT scan with a mass, things that would be reasonable to help you figure out what the next best steps would be, and we had some of these already, would be just start with some labs. You know, we love labs in internal medicine, so that's always a good place to start. A CBC can be really good to show like if, you know, there's anemia, it can point you towards if there is some slow chronic bleeding that could lead to iron deficiency. Also if you're thinking about like lymphoma or leukemia, think about something invading the marrow. You know, if the LFTs are elevated or liver tests, you might want to be thinking about something in the biliary or pancreas region. The UA has some in it. maybe that would point you more towards a bladder malignancy. But the bottom line is that you, you really need imaging to show you exactly what you're looking at. And once you have the imaging, you can think about maybe some tumor markers to kind of help raise or lower your probability of one malignancy over another. I think the GI tract has probably more tumor markers than the majority of other organs we think about. There's certain scenarios where tumor markers are more helpful than others. You know, for example, if you have a young male and you're worried about metastatic prostate cancer, checking a PSA can actually really help guide you before you even get a biopsy. An AFP can be pretty helpful too if you have a patient with underlying liver disease and liver masses and you're worried about hepatocellular carcinoma or something like that. That can guide you in the right direction as well. Unfortunately, these aren't very specifics. So they're not going to give you a true diagnosis. Um, many of them can be elevated just in the setting of something going on with that organ or can be specific to multiple different types of malignancy. Ones that come to mind there are the ca nineteen nine for pancreatic cancer. CA-125 can also have some crossover with some of the GYN malignancies and ovarian cancer. So, you know, it's something that's good to think about ordering, if you want just a little bit more of a clue and they might come back faster than you're able to get a biopsy, but not necessarily going to give you a slam dunk diagnosis. Just to clarify,
0: and correct me if I'm wrong, if this looks like metastatic disease or you have multiple masses, those can probably also guide what you, maybe you're getting to this, or this is what kind of your point is that it can guide what you might sample first. Like if the CEA is is sky high,
1: maybe you go for a colonoscopy. Yeah, so that's a great point. So I think, one of the biggest questions we have is if there are multiple masses, what do we biopsy first? And so, usually, the thing that you want to biopsy isn't necessarily the primary tumor. Like, say, if we had a sky high CEA, maybe some colonic thickening, and then we had a lesion in the liver as well, that sky high CEA and thickening in the colon might concern us that, hey, maybe this is a primary colon cancer and those are METs in the liver. So, biopsying the liver would tell us that we have metastatic colon cancer. Whereas, if we biopsied the colon and got colon cancer, we still wouldn't know for sure that the liver was metastatic colon cancer, if that makes sense. It's rare, but you can have two primary malignancies, and sometimes that can be treated very differently or can put somebody in two totally different buckets. Whereas, one's like metastatic disease, you know, poor prognosis, where one is too early stage primary cancers. So that's that's usually kind of the way I think about it when I'm trying to decide what to biopsy. And that's another reason that tumor markers might be helpful. The other thing is it's good to have just a baseline for those because once somebody starts treatment, a lot of times those go down and the oncologist can use those to guide, you know, after someone's gotten therapy to see if they're having disease recurrence or something like that. So in terms of like how you're gonna biopsy, usually an FNA is totally sufficient for a solid tumor, and if it's something very peripheral, can be fairly easily accomplished either by our CT-guided procedure colleagues. Sometimes even PATH can come at the bedside and do uh, a lymph node biopsy things like that. You do need a core biopsy if you're worried about lymphoma just to get some of that architecture of the lymph node. So those are two other kind of considerations to take into account when you're thinking about who to ask to do your biopsy and what exactly you need to get your answer. We talked about doing a a biopsy at a site that will upstage it. So like a distance lymph node or other metastatic sites is usually helpful for that. For someone like this who probably needs an endoscopy anyways, who's coming in with, like, iron deficiency anemia and epigastric pain, and you might be worried about, like, an ulcer or something like that on top of it, for this patient, we started with an endoscopy because, one, they needed it anyways, and it was pretty easy to accomplish. That's usually a fairly simple test to get into the hospital, so that's where we started for this patient. Oh, and I will just make one plug. If you're not exactly sure where to start or if you think you have an idea of what the underlying cancer is and need to uh, figure out how to stage it correctly, what imaging test to get next, there's a site called the National Comprehensive Cancer Network that has guidelines for all of these different, you know, you can essentially pick the malignancy and they'll give you what scans you need, whether you need to look for brain mets with a scan of the brain or whether a PET scan is appropriate. So that's a really great place to look and a good resource to get information on, you know, what's the best way to stage this? What imaging tests do I need? And take it from there. And it can also maybe help save you a biopsy too, because there are some certain cancers that can be diagnosed just on imaging alone. I'm sure you've probably heard like hepatocellular carcinoma with your triple phase CT. And there's similar imaging criteria for renal cell carcinoma as well. So that's just kind of a little bit of a step back thinking about general GI malignancies, but we can take it back to our patient now. So just really quickly, I do think it's
0: very interesting. And you know, for a team who's taking care of somebody with an undifferentiated malignancy or with a mass that we don't know what it is, that if onc's not involved, that it is the primary team who's deciding what to biopsy, what imaging to get. So that's really interesting that there's an, and helpful that there's these guidelines that yeah. can help somebody who is not an oncologist decide what's going to be the best diagnostic test.
1: And I think coming from the perspective of someone with a fiance who is uh, in oncology, too, that especially if you are not sure what to biopsy, they're always happy to help and answer those questions. We'd never want somebody to, you know, get the wrong site biopsy or something like that. But he has a podcast himself called The Fellow On Call, shameless plug for that, um, (laughs) where they have an episode where they talked about this. And I learned a lot from it, and I felt like it helped me a lot on the Morgan service, too. So, yeah, our patient did end up getting an endoscopy kind of as the start of their workup. So GI was consulted. They underwent endoscopy pretty quickly. After they were admitted in the evening, they got their endoscopy done in the next morning. And it was pretty, pretty impressive what they saw. There was a large, they called a malignant gastric tumor on the lesser curvature of the gastric body and in the gastric antrum that was complex and deeply ulcerated and partially obstructing and it had heaped up in irregular borders that they pretty extensively biopsied. So even without the pathology coming back, it was pretty clear that this was something malignant. And we just were waiting for the biopsy. And so going back to our differential for this gastric mass, we felt that this was probably most likely a gastric adenocarcinoma. Other things that can live in the GI tract are gastric lymphomas, GISTs or just GIST, gastrointestinal stromal tumors, neuroendocrine tumors, and occasionally METs. Breast cancer and liver cancer can be metastatic to the stomach, but it's pretty rare. And so eventually, you know, this patient was discharged from the hospital before we get the final answer back, which is pretty often the case in patients that were diagnosing with underlying malignancies. If they're stable enough, they can go home and complete the rest of their workup and treatment in the outpatient setting once we have a little bit more of the answers. And hers was a gastric adenocarcinoma. Unfortunately, her course is kind of complicated because she didn't have insurance. And so, you know, we had to coordinate follow-up through Vanderbilt for her, actually. They were able to use a grant and get to see her back in clinic. And I'll talk a little bit about kind of what's in line for, for her treatment down the road after we just talk a little bit about gastric cancer. So I was pretty surprised to find that gastric cancer is actually the third leading cause of cancer mortality in the world. I feel like we don't think about It very much in the US because it's been pretty largely reduced in numbers here just due to certain economic factors, screening for H. pylori in patients who have some of these symptoms too. But in parts of the world that are less uh, resource rich, gastric cancer is very common and very, very deadly. Back in the 1940s, gastric cancer was the leading cause of mortality in men. But in the U.S., it's actually decreased about 87 percent with similar trends reported in Europe. It's still very, very high incidence in Eastern Asia, Central and South America, Some risk factors that I think about that can up your suspicion for gastric cancer are, one, just coming from a country where H. pylori is present because H. pylori itself is a huge risk factor and causative agent for gastric cancer. So it kind of progresses in the same way that like a Barrett's esophagus progresses to an esophageal cancer that you go through the stages of intestinal metaplasia to dysplasia to eventually cancer. So it kind of follows that same track and inflammation or infection is the driver behind that, which is kind of the thought that that's why H. pylori leads to this down the line. So actually in some of those countries where the incidence or the prevalence is really high, they screen for H. pylori and they screen for gastric cancer just because it is such a leading cause of mortality. That's not cost effective in the United States right now because our incidence and prevalence has just gone down so much, but definitely something to keep in mind if you're taking care of patients from those parts of the world where this is very prevalent.
0: I feel like we have a lot of people from South America and Central America who've moved here or immigrated here it's interesting that our cases haven't gone up but okay continue on just, yeah and i'm I just think, thinking
1: no no no. i agree like i think that we do have a large population that comes from central america south america that is immigrated to the united states too which is one of the reasons that i read about this and it kind of sent off a red flag in my head that this was a potential health disparity that I really wasn't aware of until taking care of this patient. We did actually send H. pylori on this patient before they left the hospital and it was negative. We sent the, the stool antigen, so they don't have active infection. I don't know if they had been treated in the past. I don't know if we asked that. But treating H. pylori really, really reduces the risk for developing gastric cancer from that. There's also a lot of other risk factors that I feel like we should talk about. Cigarette smoking is a huge risk factor. Talked about H. pylori infection, family history of gastric cancer, especially in a first-degree relative. And then there's a lot of these probable risk factors that are sadly associated with lower economic status, like decreased intake of fruits and vegetables, high salt intake, obesity, heavy alcohol use. And actually, low socioeconomic status itself is a risk factor for developing gastric cancer, too. So, again, I think that just shows that a lot of these factors, like, you know, not having access to fresh fruits and vegetables can be a risk factor for developing this and just something to keep in mind. Also, a diet high in nitrates, which is something that's common in Japan where they eat a lot of canned fish and salted foods, can also be a risk factor for this as well. And I I wonder, just curious
0: before you move on, just kind of to touch on what we already did. But some of these risk factors, again, the high salt intake, obesity, and tobacco use are, I feel like, pretty prevalent in some parts of the U.S. So it is kind of interesting that we've seen such a decrease in the incidence of gastric cancer, and really in many parts of the U.S., there's still very much those risk factors especially in a lot of the population we take care of in Tennessee. So that is interesting that we've decreased 87% of the incidence of gastric cancer.
1: Yeah, and I feel like that just shows how big of a risk factor H. pylori is because by decreasing the prevalence of H. pylori here, we've been able to cut down the risk of gastric cancer, even though some things like obesity and high salt intake are still very prevalent, especially in the South. Right. I think another thing that's important to know about this is gastric cancer is usually asymptomatic early in the course, and a lot of times by the, by the time it's caught, the cat's already out of the bag and it's metastatic because by the time they're developing those symptoms that are, you know, more of like a dyspepsia, difficulty swallowing and some regurgitation, pain in their stomach, uh, their disease is already metastatic, so it's getting caught too late. And catching it early is really important because if you do catch gastric cancer early, it can be resected and actually cured. A lot of times chemotherapy is given in the post-operative setting too as like kind of a neoadjuvant therapy, but if you catch it early, you can actually have a primary curative treatment with surgical restriction. Surgery alone is still pretty poor survival with about like 20 to 50% at five years. So there's a lot of studies out now that are looking at the use of different types of chemo and what is most effective for it. But I'll leave that to the oncologist. I'm just here to diagnose it (laughs) and uh, get them the care they need. If it's not resectable, you can do just chemo or chemo radiation um, for more palliative treatment. On the subject
0: of catching it early, it seems like it would be very difficult to catch early unless you, if you have somebody who is immigrated from a different country, if they have one of those high risk factors, it seems like it would be very hard to catch early just based on like these vague abdominal symptoms that might not red flag you immediately in the outpatient setting.
1: Yeah. My takeaway from it is if somebody is presenting with GERD-like symptoms, dyspepsia, epigastric pain, and they come from a country where H. pylori is more endemic, then that's going to lower my threshold to screen a lot and screen more for H. pylori. And then hopefully, you know, by treating H. pylori earlier can prevent progression to gastric cancer. But in Japan, since like the 1960s, they've been doing barium swallows to screen for gastric cancer. And then if suspicious lesions are found, they do endoscopy after that. So that's one of their health metric cancer screening guidelines. It's one of their health maintenance tabs. It's it's one of their health maintenance tabs. (laughs) Somebody's winning some prizes for their screening over there. (laughs) Yeah. Not so over here again, because I think just not cost effective, but just something to keep in mind. And so for this patient, like I said, we didn't have the final results back. She did follow up with surgical oncology last week, and They are actually sending her for an EUS or uh, endoscopic ultrasound to look at some of the surrounding lymph nodes because depending on how they stage her, you know, in the TNM stage, that'll determine whether they'll do primary resection or whether they'll do some chemo first and things like that. So they're still making the perfect plan for her treatment which I think is just another important factor that they've they've now got all this information. They're going back to get even more information before they start making the treatment plan too. So I know getting a new cancer diagnosis in the hospital is really, really anxiety provoking for patients and they just want really quick answers of what's the plan? What are the next steps? What are my chances? And a lot of times there's, three four steps that need to happen before they can have a really good idea of that because if this cancer is resectable versus if it's not that's a very big difference in mortality too so a lot of times when we think about trying to give an idea of prognosis without that information it's we're giving really limited information too so my general thoughts to patients when we have a new cancer diagnosis is just displaying to them that we understand that this is a really anxiety provoking time we want to wait and make sure that we give you all the accurate information so we're still in that data phase. And we're going to try to get as much information we can to give you the best answer going forward about that, instead of just kind of trying to speculate before knowing the full picture.
0: Is there anything on her EG, like the irregular heaped up borders or partially obstructing? Was anything pathognomonic for any sort of malignancy? I'm just curious.
1: So I don't know that anything here is necessarily specific for gastric adenocarcinoma, other than it being this deeply ulcerated mass with their regular heaped up borders just Kind of is a general marker of something malignant. But you probably remember learning in medical school about something called linitis plastica, which is basically when the cancer spreads to the muscles of the stomach and makes it really thick and rigid. And so a lot of times the stomach isn't able to digest things as much or hold as much food when it gets to that point, and they get a lot more symptoms, uh, symptomatic. And that's a pretty advanced and poor prognostic uh, sign if they do have linitis plastica and on, on, endosc- on endoscopy.
0: So it sounds like recapping this specific patient, she really did have some of the risk factors we talk about from Columbia. She's symptomatic with this epigastric pain and then pretty significant iron deficiency anemia with the dark tarry stool. So you kind of had all the, the signs that you, that you may find something concerning on that CT.
1: Yeah, suspicion for malignancy just hearing that story is pretty high in my differential. Yeah, this
0: was an awesome case. Let's just recap starting with You have a mass on CT and what to biopsy. You're saying that we want to upstage as much as we can with our biopsy and then thinking about the best way to, well, how did you put that before?
1: Yeah, I would say probably some of my biggest take-home points would be try to biopsy not the primary site if you have multiple sites so you can potentially upstage with one biopsy instead of needing two. Other big take-home points would just be to be on the lookout for risk factors for gastric cancer. Think about screening patients for H. pylori if they have symptoms of dyspepsia and are from a country where it's very prevalent. And just that there's a lot of health disparities surrounding gastric cancer, too. I know that there's a lot of risk factors for other cancers that are associated with lower socioeconomic status. But I've never seen, you know, as I'm reading a paper about a certain type of cancer, low socioeconomic status is one of the main risk factors discussed. So that was something that really stood out to me and that hopefully there'll be work in the future on kind of closing some of those disparities and, you know, making sure that other countries have similar decreases in rates of gastric cancer that the U.S. has had.
0: Yeah, And it's, you know, it's a perfect, I kind of want to use the word perfect storm, but we have these patients who maybe are low socioeconomic status or don't have health insurance and then have these vague symptoms that cause them to present way later. Mm -hmm. And then like this lady shows up with a gastric cancer, all which could have been prevented or at least caught earlier if, with more access to healthcare resources.
1: Yeah, it sounded like this had been going on for like a year or so, but lack of insurance um, prevented her from presenting to care.
0: And then one thing that I also wanted to point out as a takeaway is the and guidelines. I've never used that before, and I think that that's helpful when working up a new malignancy, but also might just be helpful to go through just for our own learning about what's more likely to metastasize different places and what imaging is required for staging. I think that's very interesting.
1: Yeah. I thought it was really helpful too to, you know, have a little bit more information. I had more kind of buy in and felt like it wasn't just a subspecialty service running the show. I could kind of make a plan and let them confirm or, or deny that plan. Very cool. (laughs) As opposed to just consulting without like something in mind of what I wanted to do.
0: Christine, this has been incredibly helpful
1: yeah, I definitely learned a lot from this case, too. And our team talked a lot about what to do about this patient and how to get her the best care. And shout out to uh, Trey and Pachinam for taking great care of this patient. And
0: maybe a plug to get more H. pylori screening in patients who have maybe immigrated here from a high risk endemic area.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you have any concerns or want to talk more about H. pylori or GI in the future, I start on consults in July. So I'll see you there.
0: Wow. wow, <laughs> Very
1: exciting. I cannot wait. for. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Tara. I appreciate it. Thanks, Christine.
0: Bye. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Catch us next episode for a very infectious disease-themed episode.